Hi, I'm John Muster, and you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome yet again to another Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, Dave and I take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's in theaters, what's showing in the theaters, and what's going on in the whole multiverse of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, soon coming soon to uh, Metaverse, the Metaverse, we're going to be serving that too. I'm Al John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist, and you can email me, Al John, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm your favorite cage fighter, Dave Bossard, yes. artist, filmmaker, and author. And welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Uh, we have a great show, I think. We have a very special guest talking about Disney and World War II today. Who is that, Dave? Well, it's a very special guest. You guys will find out <laughs> shortly. Um, he's, in the, he's, and, and, he's not in the green room, though. <laughs> also, listen, I, I want to give a shout out to the Drive With Us podcast. Yeah. Have you heard about this podcast? I've heard about it because of you, Dave. You know, these two lovely sisters in uh, Maryland uh, do this uh, podcast and it's all about driving, you know, driving cars. Yeah. Uh, And uh, it was really fun. They reached out to me. They asked if I, you know, want to do this uh, podcast interview with them. And I said, of course, I love driving. That's awesome. So uh, my interview is up. It's season five, episode seven. Uh, And you can hear some of my stories about how I was in a car that flew off a cliff. Uh, what? Went airborne and uh, how I learned how to drive my father's car when I was 13 years old while he was at work. I used to start his car with a screwdriver. What? You hear about, yeah, you can hear about all those fun stories, you know. Oh, my gosh, Dave, you're boosting your old old man's car. What's up with that, Dave? <laughs> I, wa- I was. I was 13 and I was boosting cars. Gosh. Hey, um, Al John, you, you can put a link into our show notes to that, can't you? I sure will. We'll All check right. it out. You know, my, my question to you is, Dave, what is it about driving that you, you love so much? I just find it really relaxing. I, I just enjoy going out. In fact, you know, I, I, I said on the on this interview on this podcast, Drive With Us podcast, that uh, during the pandemic, I, uh, you know, periodically just got in the car and just went for a drive. No particular place. I just went for a drive. Yeah. You got to get out there and, 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 uh, and take a look around and not be so cooped up, you know, driving gives you that freedom. I got to tell you, I, I just absolutely love, uh, being behind the wheel of a car and, and going for a drive, especially, you know, when there's beautiful scenery, like when I go up to Maine or I'm down at the Delaware beaches or, you know, uh, the coast of California going up to Santa Barbara, it's just a lovely, lovely, relaxing thing for me to do. Yeah. I agree with you. I think driving up and down, especially, um, Pacific coast highway, (laughs) so beautiful, but but then, you know, even going from, I, I, I would drive from Nashville to to not just Vermont. I would go up there. Um, that's probably as far north as I've 
uh, driven. Um, you know, well, that's I take that back. Uh, I have driven all the way up, uh, you know, all the way toward uh, Chicago, and I think that's a little bit longer than Vermont, maybe from Nashville. But um, I used to drive all the time, and that's where I really fell in love with podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time I, I I would just throw on a podcast and just drive, and I've done that for years, uh, driving for work. And now that I'm home, there are times I miss it, but. You know, um, I think now we just drive back and forth from Disney. <laughs> we'll just leave yeah, it at that. You know, I got to tell you, sometimes, you know, on uh, early on a Sunday morning, Nancy and I will jump in the car and we'll just go for a drive out to the coast and find a little breakfast joint and have breakfast and That's then drive awesome. home. That's awesome. You know? That's so, awesome. Well, yeah. check out Drive With Us podcast season five, episode seven with Dave as he talks about, you know, the joys of driving, which is there which is go. great. You know, and I, I love uh, test driving different cars when I used to rent cars every week. It was a lot of fun doing that. But uh, yeah. But anyway, I tell you what, we do have an awesome show. We do have a special guest talking about Disney and World War II and the different propaganda that we're going to be talking about, what Disney was involved in, as well as some news and what we're streaming. But uh, before we even get to our streaming stuff, we do have our very special... Skull Rock Podcast answers your email. Thank you, Jimmy Mack. Our voice, our disembodied voice, and Dave, we've got an awesome, <laughs> awesome letter. Yeah, and you know something? We got this wonderful email, uh, and I'm going to read it to you, okay? Okay. It says, hi, Dave. I want to take a moment to tell you how much I enjoyed your recent interview with John Musker. Aladdin is a particular favorite of mine. I've read a lot about the tumultuous production over the years and was thrilled to hear a new John Musker interview focusing on this movie. It was another really fantastic listen from a great show. She's very kind. Yeah. Uh, the timing was also really great for me because earlier this month, I got to see one of the uh, world premiere performances of Aladdin in concert live to the film, which played in Taipei, Taiwan. Nice. I haven't seen it on a big screen since the original theatrical release and to experience it with live orchestra and uh, was an incredible thrill. Coming home from the show and seeing that this podcast had dropped was a great way to keep riding the high of the show. I also noticed your name in the credits as part of the restoration team for the film. And that got me thinking about how great it would be to hear more about you, uh, about your um uh, uh, that chapter uh, of your career. Yeah, right? that excuse me. Uh, <laughs> more, more from you about that chapter of your career, especially some of the differences between restoring cell painted films and uh, films produced in caps. I started thinking of a bunch of questions, and I know you'd have fascinating insight and stories to share. Mm. I hope all of you are well. I just got back to. Uh, I just got to back the Monsanto House of the Future book and always look forward to seeing what contributions you got to share uh, with the Disney community. Thanks again for all the work you and Al John do with the podcast. Best wishes, Ellen in Taipei, Taiwan. Well, I got to say thank you, Ellen, for that wonderful email. Um, and, and, you know, I think we said this last time on the last show, Al John, but I think it's going to turn into like at least once a month, we're going to do a show, just you and I talking about a, a topic that our listeners write in about. Don't you think? I think so, man. It's so fun 
to just break down your experiences with these films and the the archival stuff that you found. I mean, we haven't even touched Oswald yet. Like, I feel like I know. we really, I mean, that is kind of where I got to, you know, I, obviously talking to you and um, about the Roy, remembering Roy E. Disney book, the, the first version of that book that came out was incredible for, for me, but then to, uh, over the years, you know, discover your books and your writings with Oswald and, and the other stuff that you've written about over the course of your career, it's just amazing stuff. So I can't wait to break all of that stuff down to you. And, um, you've got so much, uh, in the archive well, to talk about. Well, you know, and, and I, I think this is really great when our listeners write in. So the thing I would say to Alan, uh, and I, I hopefully you're going to hear this, Alan, uh, I would like you to send us your questions that you have about restoration. Uh, and uh, we're going to try and schedule a show to talk about film restoration later, uh, maybe uh, in May, I think, because we're kind of booked up already for April, but we'll, we'll try and land it in mid-May uh, to do that. And uh, thank you very much for uh, being one of our listeners, one of our global listeners out there in Taipei, Taiwan. Ellen, thank you very much. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Ellen. So what are we streaming this week, Dave? Well, I got to tell you, I did watch a lot of stuff. I don't yeah. know where I, I was able to squeeze in the time, but I, I certainly was uh, did some power watching. Uh, first off, I saw Michael Bay's Ambulance on, looks- I, on an IMAX screen last weekend. Oh, yeah. And I got to tell you something. Yeah. This was awful. <laughs> it oh, was no. an awful. I oh, mean, no. certainly, you know, look, it's Michael Bay. There was lots of, you know, things blowing up and lots of guns and gunfights and, you know, crazy stunts and things like that. But it was just a little bit of a farcical movie, I thought. Wow. Uh, and it's, I have it, to say. It's interesting. You know, I looked at this this um you know, ambulance promo with Jake Gyllenhaal, and I'm like, okay, first of all, Jake Gyllenhaal, awesome actor. And I really, I was like, that's great. And then I saw Michael Bay attached to it. Yeah. And then all automatically my, my spider sense was tingling. It's going, um, is this what I think it's going to be? And you just confirmed it. (laughs) You know, I I have to tell, I have to tell you, you know, when, when I go, I go to the movies like, you know, all the time. Right. Yeah. It was disappointing to see a movie like this with the kind of talent that was attached to it because there was, it it was sort of ridiculous uh, storyline and some ridiculous uh, situations that, that were just, you know, so beyond plausible uh, that you just kind of shake your head and start laughing, you know, cause uh, it's like a goof. Well, I tell you, if you love Jake Gyllenhaal, maybe you pass on this one, um, or experience it for yourself. That's fine. But check out the guilty with Jake Gyllenhaal. That would be my thing because yeah. obviously he did great in Spider-Man, the last Spider-Man film, but, uh, this, the guilty is a really good one on Netflix. So please check that out. I, I, I will say this. You know, if you if you want to watch sort of a, a a popcorn movie, you know, wait for this to come on to one of the streamers. That that's what I would say about it. Uh-huh. You know, the performances are really good. It's like you know they they didn't you know they they didn't have any control over the script, you know. But the the script is kind of ridiculous, I think. So mm-hmm. anyway, so that was the movie, okay. and then 
I watched, uh, I think it was seven episodes of Latch yeah. on Hulu. Okay. And, and this is done in sort of the style of uh, uh, like The Office. They're, they're constantly breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. and uh, looking at the camera and, and whatnot. Uh, it's hilarious. Uh, this is uh, Paul Feig. Uh, uh, yes. uh, and it, it's funny as can be. Nice. I also, I finished watching Hardy Boys season two. It was okay. Um, and, but I got to tell you, I binged watched, I couldn't help myself. It was six episodes. Oh. The thing about Pam. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. And th- this is, this stars Renee Zellweger. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and I didn't even recognize her and mm-hmm. didn't realize it was her until mm-hmm. like the third episode, you know. Uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's got uh, Katie Mixon and Josh uh, Duhamel uh, yep. in it, Judy Greer. It's yep. got a great cast. Great cast. And, great cast. And, and, and basically, this is based on a true story that came off of Dateline. Yes. Yes. I did see that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's crazy. This, this is, this is the, uh, the, the description of the show. When, when Betsy Faria is murdered in small town, Missouri, the police believe it's an open and shut case involving her husband who is arrested and found guilty of the crime. However, unanswered questions remain, and the case not only leads to a wrongful conviction, but also sets into motion a chain of events that exposes a diabolical scheme involving Betsy's close friend, Pam Hupp. Yeah. Never considered a suspect, even though she was the last person to see Betsy alive, Pam keeps changing her story as she evades questions and leads investigators through a chilling series of unexpected twists and turns. This is an outstanding uh, docu-series. I wow. mean, that, that's how I, I mean, it, you know, look, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a, a drama, but I mean, you have to watch this because you cannot believe that this uh, Pam Hop uh, did all the things she did. And it's crazy. Wow. It's absolutely crazy. And it's crazy how her husband was convicted for the crime and he had nothing to do with it. You that, know, that so it was great. sort of an inept uh, DA and and a police department that dropped the ball. And Josh Duhamel yep. d- uh, plays Joel Schwartz, the attorney who represents the husband, yeah. who basically unravels this whole thing. It, it's really incredible. And I, I have to say, Renee Zellweger uh, did a, an incredible job. I mean, you can hardly even recognize her with, with the way they did the makeup. And she she looks pretty close to the real Pam Hupp. So wow. um, I watched that. And then... Uh, I have to, I have to, we need the fail button. Hit the fail button. Oh, 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 for heaven's sake, Dave. Okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. on. I have to, okay, hold on. I think I got it. Nope, nope, nope. I don't have it. (laughs) Okay. Well, listen, I, I, I made a blunder last week. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. A total blind. I totally failed. So when I was talking about how I was rewatching Better Call Saul season four, because I was waiting for season five to drop the final season. Oh. I was completely off by a season. Oh, okay? okay. So I, I rewatched season four and I started rewatching season five. 
And it's season six that's going to drop on oh. April 19th. Well, there you go. Okay. So I just wanted to correct myself and let people know that there's already five seasons of Better Call Saul and season six, which is the final season to wrap up the series is dropping on April 19th. Okay. So well, you're not that's the only all one. the stuff I was watching. Well, you're not the only one to, to get a fail. Well, I do too, <laughs> because I was talking about the dropout. Um, which is an amazing show on Hulu. And I said, Barry Bostwick and I got Barry Bostwick mixed up with Alan Ruck and Alan okay. Ruck was the guy I was talking about. Of course, people know Alan Ruck from Ferris Bueller's day off as well as star Trek and some other yeah. stuff. So yeah, anyway, you see, you're, you're not the only one. All so, right. All right. Well, I, I have to tell you that, uh, I have seen a few things, just fun things here and there. I attempted to go out and see Morbius and that was not going to be happening this week. No, <laughs> nope, no Morbius this week. So it's on, it's on tap. And I, I actually had uh, this week off uh, from work uh, to try to uh, staycation to help with the kids a little bit more. And uh, that didn't happen either, Dave, but what I was able to just kind of uh, take view of was uh, check out the movies that made us, a series on Netflix. It's fun. Uh, several seasons, three seasons of it, and it goes behind the scenes of some of our, you know, your favorite films growing up: Friday the Thirteenth, Elf, Aliens, RoboCop, Coming to America, just uh, everything about the '80s and '90s films. It's a great little documentary uh, from the same people that brought to you the toys that made us, which is a great documentary on that. And since I am a huge gamer, Dave, not only do I have Dragon's Lair, uh, I own Dragon's Lair uh, video game as well as um, Space Ace, the stuff that you worked on, Dave, which, by the yeah. way, there is an arcade cabinet for you. I'm going to give you a link to it because they are reproducing these arcade cabinets that you can have in your home <laughs> of the video games you worked on, Dave, do you, you know, so we can so you can have it. But you can check out the Netflix series High Score um, documentary about all the video games that you uh, that people love growing up. And I was a huge gamer growing up. I worked in an arcade growing up. Now I can revisit all my retro video games that I love so much. You can check that out too. Another thing that I have my eyes set on was the trailer for the new move, uh, the new series called candy um, that is starring Jessica Beale. And uh, that trailer looks amazing. So please seek that out over there because she is uh you know, working this kind of uh, diabolical uh, woman next door, um, you know, sheep, uh, wolf in sheep's clothing, murdering her best friend, the uh, best friend uh, um, while she's having an affair with her best friend's, you know, husband, you know, it's kind of like, you know, and it's a, it's a period piece. So it happens, I think back in the late seventies, early eighties. So it's a, so check out candy with Jessica Beale. That's on my radar too. So just a, a bunch of really cool stuff there to check out for sure. But uh, that's kind of what's on our radar this week. Uh, we want to know which on what's on your watch list. Uh, feel free to let us know, drop some suggestions to us via email already. Wonderful. And now it's time for, is it? <laughs> Oh, it is the Santa, Santa, the Hanna Barbera Sound Effects Factory. It's time for this, right? Oops. <laughs> Skull Rock Podcast ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Dave, Disney and Universal are planning to build affordable housing units in Florida. House house prices soar. What is up with this? 
Hey, you know, I, I, I thought this was really terrific when I saw it because uh, this will really help out, especially, you know, uh, people that are working at the parks. Yeah. Uh, you know, because uh, housing prices are, you know, at all time highs all over the United States. You know, it used to just be if you lived in California, you had, you know, the California pricing. And if you sold your house here and moved anywhere in the United States, you could get like, you know, twice the house for your dollar. Uh, but I, it seems like the rest of the country is catching up to California. You know, well, it says here that's true. Uh, Walt Disney announced plans to create 1,300 homes on 80 acres of its land in Florida. It's a growing list of theme parks uh, looking to develop that affordable housing with Universal Orlando saying that it would offer up to 20 acres to create 1,000 units of affordable housing too. And uh, it's important, I think, because they are really needing people to work. Uh, yeah. they, they need a, a, a great workforce and, you know, subsidizing some housing for them uh, will be certainly beneficial. You know, you, you live close by where you work. I know here in Nashville, you know, working here is is going to be a challenge because, once again, like you said, housing prices are through the roof in Nashville. Yeah. And it's difficult to get and attract people to work here, even at really great salaries, because the housing market is so expensive. Um you have to almost be on the outskirts and, and, and drive in to work an hour if you're not able to work remotely. Yeah. So yeah, that is something very. Uh, yeah. And, and, and by the way, I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but you know, Walt Disney world, the property they have down there, mm -hmm. it's 24 square miles. Wow. You know, it's, it's bigger than Manhattan Island. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, carving out 80, what is it? 88 acres. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's great that they're doing it. Absolutely. Well, uh, you're a Simpsons fan. I know that uh, I've seen The Simpsons. I mean, it's what, 30 plus seasons already, right? But The Simpsons yeah. fans will be happier than ever when the new Lisa Simpson short, When Billy Met Lisa, starring Billie Eilish, premieres April 22nd exclusively on Disney Plus. Plus, <laughs> plus Disney Plus. Uh, uh, Billie Eilish, uh, Billie Eilish uh, had revealed on social this week that uh, she will be appearing in this short with award-winning artists um, and Phineas will premiere exclusively on Disney+. Disney Plus. Uh, so Billie Eilish and Phineas uh, both going to be in this. And it looks pretty cool. I mean, you know, there's the key it's art. It's awesome. With, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, Lisa Simpson uh, rocking her saxophone out and Billie Eilish uh, looking like Billie Eilish. I love the Simpsons art style. I feel like I want to know what I look like as a Simpsons character, <laughs> because uh, I think everybody's done that at some point, but I never yeah. did that, but I, I need to, I think it'll be really cool. All right. And there, speaking of streaming and TV, there's the Disney, Disney world 50th anniversary special uh, episodes on food network and HGTV. You need to check that out as well. Um, you know, there is a lot of great anniversary program happening. Uh, tune in to HGTV's 100 day dream home. Um, that is available so you can set your DVRs or, you know, whatever unit you, uh, you watch from your streaming service. And then the, uh, well, let's see, the other special is doubling down with the Derricos on TLC, uh, where they go to Walt Disney world for the first time. So you can experience that. And then the food uh, network will be doing a show, uh, called the kitchen where they journey through Epcot and Disney's Hollywood studios with Jeff Morrow and his son, Lorenzo. And that is always fun to kind of do that. So, um, 
you can experience going to the Food and Wine Festival, you know, without having to leave the comfort of your own home. <laughs> so awesome. So check awesome. that out. Yep. Uh, there's a little bit more in regards to uh, Disney and Chapex uh, Rain as CEO, if you will. Um, Dave, what's the latest? Well, I, I mean, this is craziness because of, you know, how this thing has snowballed because it looks like Governor DeSantis of Florida is going to try and take away or change the status of the Reedy Creek Special District that Disney has on their property. I mean, this is a big deal. This is this is like craziness. Yeah, absolutely. I had to meet myself that the kids are screaming downstairs. <laughs> but I, well, I think the kids are upset over this. I think so. This is craziness. I think so. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the employees are embroiled in this. Obviously, the shareholders are as well. And, you know, once again, it's just one big, big mess, you know, over over this uh, don't say gay bill and what's going on. But, um, you know, I guess we'll just keep you posted yeah. as things as things uh, kind of change. Listen, all the more reason for uh, the Disney company to be Switzerland, you exactly. know, and not get involved in, in political issues and. Uh, and really, uh, you know, look, uh, they have such a broad and diverse audience uh, that, you know, you're going to you're going to piss off somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just feel as though uh, they need to get back to the focus of taking care of their employees and turning out great entertainment. Yeah, That's entertainment. what they should be doing. Exactly. Take care of people, making people the focus, make entertainment the, the the biggest focus, right? And have people take their mind off of their day-to-day lives and entertain them. That's what we turn to these things and, for. And by the way, that's what it's all about. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, they're providing escapism. Uh, you know, when you walk through the gates of one of the parks, you leave your life behind you. Yes. You leave all of the pressures and all of the, you know, uh, 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 schedules and, and, and emails and everything. You leave that behind you and you go into these parks and you have, you know, a day of, uh, of just fantasy and fun and enjoying yourself, you know? Yeah. Exactly. That's what I, that's what I do. It's great to just unplug. And yeah. uh, let's get back to the roots of that and entertain these people. Let's get the back globe. to the basics. Let's back get back to the, to the basics. basics. What brought you to the dance, Disney? That's what brought <laughs> you to the dance. So uh, s- speaking of which, it looks like things are coming full circle for Stranger Things. You sent me this. And uh, of oh. course, I love Stranger Things. And season four uh, trailer was released by Netflix this week. Uh, footage shows Eleven and the other kids of Hawkins facing new supernatural threats. There's electric guitars, lightning, and the kids are growing up. Dave, what is going on? <laughs> this was a great trailer. Yes, if, it was. If our listeners have a moment, just go and 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 find this trailer. I think Al John, you'll put the link into our show notes. <laughs> but but you've got to see this trailer because the production value is incredible. Listen to this music. Suffering is almost a fast forward through a bunch. It's time. 
Cobain, my favorite band in all the world, Journey, right? It's an amazing trailer. It really is. I love it. But what what stunned me um, because I've kind of um, I kind of let let some of my uh, viewing of Stranger Things kind of slide over over the past season. But yeah. Volume One, May twenty seventh. Volume Two, woohoo! July twenty first or July first, only on Netflix. So that's amazing, boy. You know, these kids have grown up so fast, Dave. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it, it's something else. But, you know, listen, I'm looking forward to seeing the season drop. It is. It is. And it's great to see all of these quote unquote kids kind of come into their own. And these roles that we've known them for the past four seasons have just been amazing work. Uh, speaking of a body of amazing work, uh, we have some sad news to report. Gilbert Gottfried, the controversial comedian, with the shrillest of voices, according to The Hollywood Reporter, passes away at the age of 67, most notably known for Aladdin, of course, Beverly Hills Cop 2. He made the craziest of jokes, but he was also, a, uh, from my understanding, a really, really nice guy. And it's, uh, it's a shame. He died at the age of 67. And uh, Dave, you have you ever met Gilbert Gottfried at all? No, I never met him. Uh, you know, I, I've heard, uh, you know, from a lot of colleagues, uh, to, he was just an incredibly nice guy. Um, he did the voice of Iago in Aladdin. He also was the voice uh, for, for quite a while of uh, the Aflac duck. Yes. Uh, uh, the Aflac insurance commercials. Um, and I have to say, uh, this was a shocker. Uh, and then uh, when I read some more about it, I had no idea he had a genetic disorder uh, that affected his heart. Yes, it's uh, his, and it was uh, really sad. Yeah. But his publicist, Glenn Schwartz, said Godfrey died in Manhattan from a recurrent ventricular tachycardia. Uh, tachycardia. I, I'm having a hard time saying it. I, I practiced it. I practiced it. Tachycardia. I'm glad you're trying to say it because I wouldn't have been able to. <laughs> Tachycardia due to type two monotopic dystrophic. Uh, uh, dystrophy. 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 Yeah. Oh it, I mean, it was, it, 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 it's one of these very rare forms uh, of muscular dystrophy. And yes. in this particular instance, it affected his heart. Yes. Oh man. I just butchered that. And I, I, I apologize, but you know, I remember Gilbert being a stand-up comedian first and then Beverly Hills cop two, and then going into, you know, Aladdin, but his voice is just, second to none you you know gilbert godfrey's voice you know and uh his of course portrayal of a, a yago in um in aladdin is just a, yeah. an amazing thing so once again you will be missed uh, a lot of notable celebrities had uh, commented over social media about his passing as well but uh, we will remember him and i know the audience will too and, you know, one striking photo that was posted uh, was a picture of him with Bob Saget and Louis Anderson. Yeah. All three of them gone. It's amazing. It is. Really amazing. It is. Uh, you know, these comedic giants, you know, they're gone too soon. And yeah. uh, now they'll all be up upstairs, if you will. Um, performing at the uh, performing at the grandest stage of them all. So uh, yeah, let's hope we, so. Exactly. Until we see each other again, right. let's get on to this knucklehead. You got it. Green well, all right, let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast answers your email. Wow, 
This email is so epic, Dave, that we decided to devote an entire podcast to it. How cool is that? <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. So we received an email from a listener, Scott Rosen. Thank you, Scott, for sending in your email. Long short of it is, the show continues to be great, and I really enjoy the interviews, and you have great conversations with the subjects. I'd love to have a show about Disney on the Frontlines DVD set. It's another period in the studio's history that isn't talked about much, and that is set so interesting. I'd love to learn more about it. Well, I think we have uh, some answers to that in this particular podcast, right, Dave? Yeah, we do. I'm in the green room because I'm the guest. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, hey, welcome to the, the show. Well, welcome to the show. Dave Bosser, <laughs> filmmaker extraordinaire, also ninja and, and MMA, uh, MMA cage fighter. Uh, Dave Bosser go. joining us on the show today. So, Dave, welcome to this <laughs> Skull Rock podcast. It sounds so silly for me to say that. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it, you know. But, you know, I, I honestly, uh, we love getting listener um, uh, emails. And, uh, and I've got to tell you, um, I, I think it's starting to sort of uh, uh, have us reshape our podcast a little bit because I think going forward, we may have like a show a month where it's just driven by a listener question and it's just you and I chatting. I'm loving it. I'm, I'm absolutely loving that. So that's, that's great. And we need more people to email you, Dave at skullrockpodcast.com or Aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com to talk about stuff like Scott did. And so he brings up a very interesting point. You know, World War II was a very interesting and uh, may I say even, uh, you know, crazy time for the studio you know, because of what had gone on. Let's set the stage, right, Dave? So, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves comes out in 1937. 37, right? right so yeah, right. Yeah. So you're kind of at the tail end of the the depression. You know, you're mm -hmm. coming out of the depths of the Great Depression. Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves blows off uh, people's shoes, right? Yes. Blows blows the the boots off the box office. And uh, and they're riding high, you know. Walt purchases the property in Burbank. He builds this incredible studio campus uh, designed by Kem Weber, uh, and all the artists are moving in there from the Hyperion Studio Complex over in Silver Lake. Uh, they're moving in in 1939. Well, guess what else is happening in 1939? World War II actually starts in September of 1939 with the Nazis invading Poland. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so you know, all of a sudden, you've got the box office starting to get choked off in, in the fall of 1939 because of this war that's starting to rage in Europe. And that has a direct impact on Pinocchio because the artists at the Disney studios were working on Pinocchio while they were at the Hyperion studio. And when they moved over into the Burbank studio. Yes. Right. Yes, you absolutely. Hey, let's, let's also, let's also put this into uh, some context as well. So Snow White was made for about $1.5 million, which is no, no laughing matter 
back in the day, back in 1937. And its box office is, what, $418 million, something like that, that I see in this graph. I mean, it's In in today's dollars? In today's dollars, something like that. With all all the re-releases, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot, absolutely. It, it It made a ton of money. And so... And the studio uh, Walt was putting in, as you said, just investing in the studio. And here you go, it, Pinocchio's released. Uh, it's getting choked out, you know, because of the distribution in Europe. Kind of what we see here today with Russia, you know, invading in the Ukraine. Everything's getting cut off there for global releases, and they're not uh, releasing films out there, you know, for for good reason. But uh, well, the I mean, the Russian and Ukraine war right now is, is having a ripple effect across the global economy. Yeah, one hundred percent. You know, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the Ukraine is a huge breadbasket. I mean, they produce a tremendous amount of wheat. That that in and of itself, if that uh, uh, is is hurt by uh, the war, which it will be, uh, they're talking about potential uh, food insecurity and food uh, shortages and and potentially famines in some parts of Africa because uh, uh, of the wheat not getting to where it needs to be. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, this is, this is what happens when, when wars break out you know, such as this. And then going back to, you know, this World War II is it's it's happening. So the profits are are not coming in. It's not doing tremendously well at all um, globally. But uh, the studio finds itself in a situation where they may be, uh, you know, and I hate to use the word, but I guess they're drafted you know, to a certain extent to put out these uh, propaganda films and things of that. Yeah. But, but you know something before you even get to that, I think that, you know, because uh, they're, they, they're losing about a third of their box office, which was coming out of uh, Europe. um, I think Walt was very, um, uh, uh, very uh, much a, uh, agile individual in adapting and changing as he needed. And so he started looking at other avenues for application of animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he winds up doing uh, the uh, four methods of flush riveting for the Lockheed company. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, you know, and when he, he does that, he sh- he's showing how... Animation uh, is a great medium for showing cutaways of complex uh, concepts, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a a cutaway to show how a rivet uh, gets put into uh, aircraft sheet metal. With the ever-increasing demand for greater speeds in aircraft, it has been necessary to remove every possible projection from the outer surface of the airplane. Everything that would induce turbulence with its attendant drag must be reduced to a minimum. The use of a rivet whose head is flush with the surface being riveted eliminates the drag of the ordinary rivet head and thus aids in accomplishing our higher speeds. Right. Uh, and the different techniques for that. And, and I have to say, you know, that really was sort of the beginning of not only the educational film division that would later come at Disney, but it also gave, gave Disney an avenue for uh, the eventual involvement of the U S in the war and doing training films 
instructional films, propaganda films. Uh, there, there was a number of things they wound up doing. And all told, there was over 200 of these films that were done during the war years. Now, that, that, is, that is quite a list of films, a lot of miles on film. So for our listeners, the uninitiated, you know, if you go to davidbosser.com, you actually see a bunch of articles that you've written over time, published articles that have been, you know, in, in all kinds of different uh, journals and, and websites. But you talk about a lot of these things in these articles. So a lot of them are, you know, artists doing insignias, uh, how Disney is making gas masks and different things that people may not be aware of other than the different films, educational films that uh, Disney has done over that time period. Yeah. And, and by the way, before he, uh, you know, before Walt and, and the crew at the Disney studios starts working on a lot of this uh, uh, stuff for the U S government uh, before the U S got involved with the war, you know, as I mentioned, he did four methods of flush riveting uh, for Lockheed, but for the, uh, for Canada, for the national film board of Canada, he, he did the thrifty pig, uh, which was a uh, public service announcement uh, that was played in theaters to get the Canadian public to purchase war bonds. Uh, he did a series of them, The Thrifty Pig, The Seven Wise Dwarves, and uh, Donald's Decision, and All Together. Now, those were all done between 1941 and 1942. Obviously, we get involved in the war, but he signs the deal to do these before Pearl Harbor, before Pearl Harbor is bombed uh, and wow. the U.S. enters World War II. Wow. That is that is something else, and uh, there is footage of that floating around. If you're so inclined to uh, to check that out, it is and, quite and, interesting. And, and the other thing I, I want to mention was uh, uh, Walt wound up uh, uh, selling uh, the rights or you know licensing the rights to uh, Canada for four methods of flush riveting. Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah. So, so you know, they obviously once once uh, the war really got going, uh, Canada was involved as part of the Commonwealth of the United Kingdom, and uh, and so you had uh, uh, all kinds of war production going on uh, uh, in Canada. Wow, that is something else, and you know, it, it is fascinating to see the types of films that they're doing and these, these kind of propaganda films, if you will. So when is it exactly that they get kind of drafted to do these films for our own military and to do these war bond films and to, you know, kind of make Donald duck the, uh, the face of uh, joining the military, <laughs> you know? Well, I, you know, I think, I, I, I think you have to look at it from the standpoint that, um, uh, by the fall of 1941, uh, Walt is already having discussions uh, about doing uh, various uh, films for the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. uh, and they really just sort of heated up. Uh, and, and that's where you get um, paying your income taxes. Uh, you know, they, they rolled a whole bunch of people onto the tax rolls uh, at, at the outset of the war. And so uh, you had um, 
uh, the new spirit. And, uh, and that was delivered in uh, January of 1942. Uh, they released that. There is a new spirit in America. That's right. The spirit of a free people united again in a common cause to stamp tyranny from the earth. That's right. Our very shores have been attacked. That's right, right. Your whole country is mobilizing for total war. Your country needs you. Are you a patriotic American? Yes, sir. Eager to do your part? Yes, sir. Then there's something important you can do. I'm proud, proud boy. I'll do it. You won't get a medal for doing it. Oh, that's all right. It may mean a sacrifice on your part. I'll do it anyway. But it will be a vital help to your country I'll in this hour of need. Shall I tell you what it is? Yes. What is it? Tell me. Shall I? Your income tax. Income tax? Yes, your income tax. Income tax. And, and by the way, I, I've done a lot of research on this particular project because uh, there, there was a phone call at the end of November. Uh, let me see here. It was, uh, it was early December uh, and about doing the tax picture. And they were talking about the story. Walt was in Washington, D.C. His artist, Joe Grant, and, and a group of, uh, of artists were here in Burbank. They were talking via long-distance telephone call about what the picture was going to be. Mm -hmm. And literally six weeks later, they're releasing uh, the new spirit in theaters. How are that, they That's able, how fast they did it. How, I mean, how on earth are they able to do that that quickly? You know, it, it, where there's a will, there's a way. And when you've got really great artists and uh, people who are working quickly, um, you know, these guys aren't doing, you know, five drawings a day. Uh, you know, these guys were turning out, you know, Arima drawings a day uh, oh, to man. get these things done. But you had the new spirit that came out that was played in movie theaters and it was all about um, uh, telling people, you know, you're you're on the tax rolls. There was there was something like seven million tax uh, payers uh, who had never filed income taxes before who were mm. added to the tax rolls. Uh, and uh, the Treasury Department looked to Disney to help uh, in educating the taxpayers uh, with these public service announcements. And they followed it up a year later, January of 1943, with the spirit of 43. And both of these you can probably find uh, on uh, YouTube. They are there. Uh, if, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and by the way, in the spirit of 43, it's the first time we see a version of Scrooge McDuck. That's right. How about that? Yeah. yeah. He wasn't known as Scrooge McDuck at that point, but he, he looks awfully close to what became Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> That's too true. So the Treasury Department films in the new spirit, the film was seen by 26 million people. And it said that a Gallup poll, 37% admitted that the film played a factor in their willingness to pay taxes. How about that? Yeah. And, and by the way, that long distance, that long distance phone call was on December 18th, 1941. So it's wow. 11 days after Pearl Harbor is bombed. Amazing. Right. 
and uh, and Walt is in Washington D.C. and he's on the phone with Joe Grant, director uh, Bill Sharp, uh, excuse me, Ben Sharpstein, uh, and a few other story guys, and they're talking about what the picture was going to be. And Walt, I have the transcript of the phone call. Wow. And Walt is describing, and and they're all chatting and and formulating what the story is going to be for this cartoon. Oh, that's that's great, man. Um, so they're heavy entrenched. They're doing these um, government contracted films. They are getting paid what a compensation of ninety thousand dollars per short. Is that right? Wow. And I mean, they were making at least some money um, because well, of the, you know the production. They, they they were they were having their costs covered and the costs of the prints covered. I mean, I I don't think that Walt was necessarily making a huge profit, although, you know, he he went and agreed to do the new spirit and then went back and said, okay, we've done it. We need to be paid. And the treasury department, you know, the treasury secretary at the time said, uh, Oh, I've got to get Congress to uh, appropriate the funds for that. Oh my. Uh, And and then there was a big dust up uh, in Congress and people accusing Walt of being a war profiteer Uh and all of these things. And there was some really horrific letters uh, from people, you know, out in the public who wrote in, uh, you know, uh, calling Walt all kinds of derogatory terms and, and whatnot. And, you know, again, this is a case of people not really understanding what the situation was and the fact that they weren't making a profit. They were, they were being paid for their cost. And, and a lot of these contracts were done in order to keep really uh, the studio afloat. Walt Walt was taking a lot of this stuff on because they just wanted revenue to come in to cover the cost of their artists. Right. I mean, you know, you're not just sitting in a room with a couple people and a pencil uh, making these type of films. I mean, it takes an entire village and Walt employed an entire village of animators and inkers and all kinds of people to, to do these films. And, they need to be compensated. I mean, they have to put food on their table at this point, you know, they have to keep the studio lights on. And so that was a lot, a lot of films to be done. And during that time, uh, it says here, they were, they were making over 400,000 feet of educational war films, as you say, at cost, which is equal to 68 hours of continuous films. That is huge. (laughs) It's yeah. a lot of oh, films. No. It, it, it's absolutely amazing. But they're but, not, yeah, you know, yeah, but they're not even doing, and, and, they're, they're doing that and they're doing, uh, you know, not only the animated films, but they're also putting together actual film films, you know, to put yeah, in front they, of these They theaters. were doing live action training films and, and, and all kinds of stuff. And, and, you know, it's interesting though, because Walt was taking everything he learned to that point about entertainment and storytelling and applying it to these types of films. And, and I, and I think that uh, on the new spirit, there was a lot of favorable reviews. And the one that jumped out to me was from the Chicago Tribune's drama critic at the time, this guy named Ashton, Ashton Stevens. And he said, when a movie When a movie laughs you into paying, making out out an income tax return and borrowing money to pay it on the line, that isn't just uh, uh, propaganda. 
it's magic that partakes of the miraculous. You know? oh, wow, that is and, some high and, praise. You know, and, and I thought that was pretty hilarious. There was another reviewer uh, from the New York Herald who said, Walt Disney's first production for the Treasury Department should go on, uh, should go uh, an incalculable way towards easing the grief and dismay with which the public customarily views income taxes. So he made it, he made it very entertaining and, uh, and fun with Donald Duck paying his, uh, his income taxes. And the film was nominated for best uh, uh, documentary uh, at the uh, Academy Awards in 1943. You brought up something very interesting not only the Academy Awards, but Donald Duck. That's not the only Academy Award uh, that Disney won during that time. I mean, do you want to go into this <laughs> in the next second? Oh, no, go, go ahead. You, you know, let's you, talk about Donald Duck. in front of you, don't you? Well, I do. I mean, why don't we yeah. talk a little bit about Donald Duck and him being kind of, you know, the face of a lot of these these films. I mean, so many of them, like The Fuhrer's Face, for example. Sure. Um, I think that's kind of the... I, I wouldn't say, I mean, it's probably one of the most written about uh, pieces of that time. And it also, yeah. it, you know, won an award, did it not? Yeah, it won an Academy, Academy Award, award. For sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's considered one of the propaganda films, you know, yeah. uh, along with Reason and Emotion and uh, Chicken Little. Yep. And the, for, the, fourth, the fourth propaganda film from that era is Education for Death. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. So education for death, reason and emotion, uh, um, chicken little and Defura's face. Th those are the four propaganda films. And by the way, just for our listeners, if you have that uh, on Disney, Disney on the front lines, DVD uh, treasures edition, uh, the two DVD set of all the world war two stuff that we put together. Um, there is a uh, disclaimer baked at the head of each of those four propaganda films uh -huh. and they're not included in the play all function on the DVD. That's right. Right. So you have to actually navigate to it. And if you're going to, if you're going to watch the Fuhrer's face 50 times, you're going to listen to uh, Leonard Malton 50 times give the disclaimer at the beginning. And we did that on purpose because we want to make sure that people contextualize these films for the period in which they were made. Hello, I'm Leonard Malton. The movie industry was still quite young when America went to war in 1914. But even then, many people in the government and the armed forces understood the value of using film as a tool to educate, enlighten, and stir an audience, be it military or civilian. As soon as President Franklin D. Roosevelt declared the U.S. entry into World War II on December 8, 1941, Hollywood prepared to play its part in winning that war. No studio devoted more of its time and resources to wartime activity than Walt Disney's. The military virtually took over the Burbank lot, and Walt's artists found themselves working on everything from aircraft insignias to highly technical training films to home front propaganda. Remember, America had done everything it could to stay out of war. So it was especially important that average citizens understand why we were fighting, whom we were fighting, and how they could help. No one did a better job of addressing those issues than Walt Disney. You know, mm -hmm. because there is some things in there that 
would be considered offensive, you know, by some people today. Uh, and even back then, probably some people thought it was offensive. Sure. Sure. But listen, I mean, this was all done as propaganda. This was, this is all done in that, in that certain time period, you know, this was a, this was a very, uh, Volatile time in in the history of the earth in, 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 wor history. in world history. Yeah. World history. But, you just, know something. The other thing that that I think is important to note is that you know the U.S. wasn't just making the you know their propaganda films. The Germans were making propaganda films, mm -hmm. and the Japanese were making propaganda films. Right. And you know, and the whole purpose of propaganda is to sway people's opinion, the public's opinion, to your way of thinking. Right. You know. So so for for the Germans. Germans and the Japanese, we, the U.S. was being portrayed as the aggressor and as the enemy and the evil and all of this, you know, the same way we would have been portraying those enemies. Right. And it happened in all the different access and allied countries and every studio as well. Disney wasn't the only studio making propaganda no. films. Warner Brothers was knee deep in yeah. this and Universal was too. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And in, in, in fact, you know, Warner Brothers uh, ha has a, uh, a hilarious various uh, uh, series of uh, private snafu films they do. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that were done, many of which I think would be really hair-raising, uh, to <laughs> say the least. A little, yeah, that's, a, that's a very politically correct way of saying it, Dave. <laughs> Congratulations. No, but but it, it, it is amazing to see these films as a product of its time. I think, you know, I, before that we started rolling, I said, Dave, you know when you see Leonard Malton's face, you know here comes a disclaimer. And 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 it, of course that's that's what I that's what we saw that's what I saw in these films. But once again, it's all about putting people into that context and letting them kind of sink in that this is a period piece. This is a piece of a, of its time. And Donald Duck, I mean, still what a great character. Um, and as you said in the you know the other pieces too. You know, I mean, Donald Duck is helping sell ice to Eskimos, basically. Yeah. And this and yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I think it's important for us to point out that, you know, uh, of all the characters that were in the Disney studio uh, stable, uh, you had to use Donald Duck because he was the fighter. Mm -hmm. He was the one that was always getting angry and, you know, had to clench fists and all of that, uh, as opposed to Mickey Mouse. And I think at that time, Donald's popularity had eclipsed Mickey. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think using Donald in a lot of these uh, films was appropriate. You know, he was the fighter. He was going out there and he was fighting. So you had, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the just standard entertainment cartoons that were war themed. <laughs> Yeah, he he was every man. He was the yeah. he was a de facto every man, every every person. Um, you know, I I get up in the day, I do my thing, and I see myself in these propaganda films. Uh, there, there was a, you know, in Defer's face, he he wakes up uh, in 
as a Nazi. And then at the very end, he pulls a J.R. Dallas style and he wakes up and he realizes it was all a dream. He is proud to be a patriot. He is proud to be a citizen of the United States. Like the very last thing, he throws a tomato into Adolf Hitler's face, right? That's kind of, that's kind of what happens at the very end. And then there you go. Donald Duck once again is, is a patriot. And it really kind of, that, that kind of, um, those type of films, propaganda films really wanted to spur that nationalism that everybody's like, you are putting you, you are doing your part as an American citizen. You're paying your taxes. You are, you are rationing food. You are, you know, paying for war bonds, you know, you're paying for, for the greater good. And that was exactly what Walt Disney and the company was doing at that time. Uh, is it, it's no surprise to me that he was kind of, the face of those films. I mean, working stuff for the, the armed forces and the Navy and all the different branches of the military, the army. And I, <laughs> the, the one that comes to mind is uh, Donald duck. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the film. Dave, you'll have to jog my memory, but he's walking down. I think this is the recruitment one. So he's, he's walking down and he see all this propaganda and join the army and do this and see yourself. And he pictures himself uh, where, the airman is with all the, the ladies, you know, you know, comforting him and saying, yeah. welcome home. You're a big war hero. And he, you, it, the, 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 the man, the, 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 the war hero was replaced by Donald duck. He can see himself in that role. And that yeah. was the whole point. It's like life imitating art. You know, this is what we want you to do. We want you to see yourself as a war hero and right. enlist in the army, you know, and do this. And it's just, and, and that's what, that's what all of those great recruiting posters were all about. You know, yeah. is just showing all these buff dudes, you know, uh, in whatever branch of the military. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could be the guy that's going to help end this war, you know? Absolutely. There was there was a film in here that you had written about, which is about uh, food would win win the war the Disney way. And I think it's a very interesting piece. I I love this particular short because this was, this was a way of, it's like everybody was getting in on the, uh, on the act and the farmers (laughs) didn't want to be left out. No, no, it's important. You you talked about this. Well, and and you see, you you set it up earlier in the show where you're talking about the Ukraine and the wheat and everything like that. So I wanted to bring this back up again, because it is interesting that by you, watching this film and understanding everything is part of this war effort. So tell us a little bit about it. Cause you wrote a, a great article about this one. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was, you know, certainly uh, the United States treasury department and treasury secretary at the time, Morgenthau, uh, they, uh, you know, they, they obviously got Disney to do, you know, uh, the uh, new spirit and uh, urging people to pay their income taxes. Well, at the time, the secretary of agriculture was closed. Claude Wichard, uh, and he wanted to remind audiences of the importance of food and the farmers that grow it uh, to the war effort. And so he, you know, he commissioned uh, the food will win the war uh uh, short uh, again, that was uh, you know, and it was done. It was done through the agriculture department working with the office of the coordinator of information, uh, 
Uh, and they created this campaign that was really promoting food and farmers and the contribution of agriculture to the war effort. And by the way, not just the amount of food, like the amount of food that was grown in the United States was plenty for the American population, but there was an abundance of food that they were able to ship overseas. Mm -hmm. And that actually became part of a program that helped, uh, uh, helped the, uh, 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 the Roosevelt administration get around uh, some regulations on supplying uh, 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 materials to our allies before we got into the war, because there was a huge amount of people in the United States that were isolationists. They didn't want to get involved with the war. They wanted like let other people deal with that. We're not involved with it. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, this was, this was one of the ways that they were able to um, uh, get around some of that stuff and get uh, food to the allies because there was a thing called the Lend Lease Act of 1941, which allowed the U.S. to send food to the allies bypassing a cash and carry law that prevented the president from extending credit to countries that could not immediately pay for their supplies. Yeah. So, so this was, this was kind of a, you know, again, this is the politics going on in Washington, DC, but, um, and by the way, uh, Disney uh, uh, created uh, the logo uh, for the Lend-Lease Act, which was an American Eagle and stars and USA and, and all of that. And people can find that, they can see an example of that in my article on uh, uh, Food Will Win the War, the Disney way. Great, great article there at davidbossert.com. Um, you know, the interesting thing about this is this edutainment factor, which I think really kind of begins blossoming at Disney at this point, because there is almost like infographics, right? You have telling the audience, uh, as you say in your article, um, you know, that if all of this food or these bushels of 50 million bushels of corn is being grown in one, one huge ear would make a bridge from London to the black sea. And they had yeah. the little graphics to, to go along with that or saying, you know, this little girl plump on diet of 11 billion pounds of fats and oils would outweigh a hundred super dreadnoughts, those big yes. battleships. And once more, she'd black out all of Berlin, right? Um, you know, or, or, or you could do it like, and you know, outweigh 100 super dreadnoughts. And once more, she'd black out all of Berlin, you know, <laughs> the RKO radio kind of pictures. Yeah, the name. I know. But and, yes. and, and, you know, I, I, I have to say, uh, you know, edutainment uh, is a great word because it, it keeps the audience engaged and it's showing them information that, you know, a lot of it's very dry statistical information, but they're, they're showing it in a way that's very entertaining. Oh yeah. You, you know, know the, the one that got me was uh, there's a, there's X amount of million you know, gallons of cheese being produced that is, equals a third of the moon and they scrape the moon and it's a piece of cheese. It's like the, the strangest things. But once again, you know, this is the beginning of that edutainment factor that would be uh, a, a part of the Walt Disney Company moving forward from this, not just with propaganda films, but of course, in the way that they'll start educating, um, you know, children across uh, the United States and adults. Or should we turn this milk into butter? 
war-flooded fields of Holland could be reclaimed by dikes it would build. And if made into cheese, it would make a piece equivalent to this much of the moon. Just imagine a fire made from four volcanoes the size of Vesuvius and a griddle 500 square miles in area. That's what it would take to broil the 30 billion pounds of meat American farms are producing. This little girl grown plump on a diet of our 11 billion pounds of fats and oils would outweigh a hundred super dreadnoughts. And what's more, she'd black out all of Berlin. American hens are busy, too, laying 50 billion eggs. If all these were made into one huge fried egg, it would cover all the United States and Canada. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, you know, again, uh, all of this uh, material that they were creating for the U.S. government and, and uh, others uh, during World War II, uh, this material, uh, I think, is, is directly related to the beginnings of the Disney Educational Productions division uh, that really took off after the war. And, 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 you know, you had films like Donald in Math Magic Land and, um, you know, films on VD and health films That's and right. things like that that were being done. I mean, all of that stuff, uh, um, you know, was used uh, in schools and uh, they had a, such a tremendous catalog of material uh, that had generated all kinds of revenue for the company for decades. Yeah, absolutely. This is what you had talked a little bit about how Disney and Disney artists were kind of employed to do different things. They've done training manuals using art. They've done all kinds of different stuff with these propaganda films. But talk to me a little bit about Hank Porter, because um, you wrote a great article about how his designs of using insignias during World War II, he was kind of drafted because of that. And he has a particular style that I absolutely love. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I I, I absolutely love uh, Hank Porter, uh, and it's a great story because you know he was he was hired at the Disney Studios in 1936, and he moves his family to Los Angeles. He's originally from upstate New York, he moves his family out to Los Angeles, and he's working at the Walt Disney Studios, and you know he works um, uh, in the animation department on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a really great artist. I mean, he's one of these guys. So he's eventually moved into, uh, uh, what became known as Disney's publicity art department. And he was the staff artist. And I'd argue he was the guy in charge of the group. Uh, and there were, there were other artists that came in uh, that, that worked uh, uh, within uh, that whole area. Uh, you had uh, Roy Williams. And a lot of our listeners will remember Roy Williams because he became one of the adult Mouseketeers right. in the 1950s. You know, and you had uh, George uh, 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 Jepper. And uh, Van Kaufman uh, are the other artists that were in this uh, publicity art department. And, and I have to tell you, uh, this is... Uh, this is sort of like the beginning of Hank Hank Porter to me is legendary because he did a tremendous amount of the World War II insignias that came out of the Disney studios. Yeah. Right. And it started by the way uh, with a letter 
Um, in uh, 1941, before the U.S. is involved in the war, there's a Lieutenant Caldwell who's with Naval Operations Office in Washington, and he writes to Disney asking for an emblem for the fleet of PT boats. And PT boats are, PT stands for patrol torpedo boats, right? These are, the PT boats are like the PT-109 that was skippered by uh, Lieutenant John F. Kennedy, right? Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Disney responds within a couple of days and Hank Porter basically designs this mosquito on a torpedo insignia for the PT boats. Yeah. And that, kind of opened the floodgate because every unit in the armed services, every branch started writing in and they wound up doing somewhere upwards of 1200 military <sighs> insignias during world war two. And, Man. and they were given away. I mean, Walt, Walt basically just, you know, they just did it and gave it to the, the, these uh, military units. And it was a great morale boost that I did you know? not know. I did not know that fact. You know, I, I read your article before, but it, it seems to me like I didn't realize they were not paid for these. No, no. The, he was, he was given this stuff away left and right. Oh, that is amazing. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think it's really fantastic. It, it, it's an area of, uh, uh, Disney, uh, memorabilia collecting there. There's a lot of folks out there that, uh, that have original artwork, uh, of these insignias. Wow. Uh, and in fact, there was just a, a, a large auction at Heritage Auctions in Texas uh, where they sold a whole bunch of uh, World War II material, mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, and a lot of it was the original drawings of these insignias. Oh, wow. uh, and, and by the way, I will I will tell you, I have some original uh, uh, Hank Porter drawings and Roy Williams drawings in my collection. That's amazing, Dave. That is absolutely amazing. And. It, that is a, a staggering, a staggering amount of artwork. And I wish there was a, a place where we could see a lot of that stuff. You know, maybe it would be great for a book down the road. Well, you know something, there actually is, uh, um, uh, there, I think it's called uh, Donald's Dog Tags. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, which is a small book that showcases uh, just a, a sampling, if you will, uh, of all of those insignias. Wow. Uh, and and uh, there's certainly uh, uh, more to be written about that, uh, uh, that artwork. Absolutely. Um, yeah. If, if anyone's going to unearth it, Dave, that would be you, my friend, being, being, <laughs> being the Indiana Jones of uh, the archive. Uh, let me just, let me just add it to the list. <laughs> add it to the list. Yeah, I know how many more books you got in the hopper, Dave. Uh, another thing that goes as I'm doing research on this and you've written an article about this is how Disney also designed a gas mask for kids with Mickey Mouse. I, this is I, I got to tell you, I love this story. I, I was just so, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I was so over the moon uh, uh, when I was researching this and some of the material I found. Uh, but but this goes back to um, uh, what was going on in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and the Nazis were, were using, uh, gas, uh, in, in, in their, uh, combat, uh, in their, uh, in their attacks. Right. Uh, and there was a real fear 
in the United Kingdom, uh, in England, uh, about uh, the Nazis possibly, uh, you know, gassing uh, London. And so over there, uh, they actually were giving all the children gas masks and they don't look anything, obviously, like Mickey Mouse. But the adults were referring to them as Mickey Mouse gas masks for the kids to make it more palatable for them to put them on and use them. Oh, of course. You know, and uh, and so uh, there was. A, a a tin, if you will, or a, a, a case that was uh, manufactured uh, uh, in uh, London that did have Mickey Mouse on it right. that the kids could put the uh, their gas mask in. Uh, and I, I, I have a friend who has one of those. Uh, but uh, in the in the United States, uh they were literally turn, turning to Walt to say, hey, can you design something using Mickey? And he came up with a design for a gas mask, and it was manufactured by the Sun Rubber Company uh, in Ohio. And the Sun Rubber Company was, uh, was a company that was making um, uh, rubber toys, uh, right. and they were a licensee for Disney. So they were, they were already, you know, uh, under license, they were manufacturing, you know, rubber Mickey dolls and all kinds of Disney characters. In fact, uh, aside from Mickey mouse, there's, uh, there's a, um, uh, a three little pigs gas mask uh, that the Sun Rubber Company came up with a prototype for, uh, but it was never manufactured. But on on the Mickey Mouse gas uh, mask, there was a, a handful of them made. They were distributed to some of the you know uh, military personnel, and and I understand that even President Roosevelt got uh, got a version of it. Um, and uh, this is just such a fascinating story because they were looking at potentially manufacturing millions of these Mickey Mouse gas masks to give to children along the East Coast because there was a real fear uh, that there could potentially be an attack by the Germans, by the Nazis on yeah. the East Coast of the United States. And so th there was this fear, but then they decided that they weren't going to do it because they felt that you know, the rubber products and, and, you know, everything that goes into making these gas masks was better used for other things uh, and not making those gas masks. But Walt went to Washington and he met with the chief of the civil defense division, chief of the technical division, the chief of the chemical warfare service and uh, the chief of the industrial service. And he brought uh, drawings of what this uh, Mickey Mouse gas mask was going to look like and, and all of that. And by the way, I, I, I um, uh, a descendant of one of the owners of the sun rubber company uh, reached out to me me uh, this year uh, oh. and uh, has uh, a Mickey Mouse gas mask, uh, you know, the, the rubber part that would go over your face yeah. uh, and some documentation and stuff. So he's been very kind and he and I have been communicating and he's been sending me scans of documents and things like that. So wow. I'm, I'm actually going to wind up expanding my, uh, my article that I wrote, the Mickey Mouse gas mask used in name and design during World War II. <laughs> uh, um, 
I'm going to be expanding that article out uh, in the future with additional information that's come come to light. Wow, that's amazing stuff. Once again, it's it's great that these people are reaching out to you uh, as you shine a light on these incredible projects that would probably get lost uh, over time, but you have been able to unearth this and make it available for people. And once again, if you're interested, there are amazing articles um, for this period that David uh, Dave is, uh, has put out there at davidbossert.com. I'll put a link to this uh, great treasure trove of articles in our show notes so that you can kind of read and, and check this out. And of course, all the different videos that we're talking about in regards to the World War II propaganda films in the Disney era are on YouTube. I'll put a link to a playlist as well uh, for people to check out. But this is, it, it's an amazing piece of history and a, a, a moment in time where Disney gets diverse and, and tries yeah. to make sure they keep the, the doors open and, and food on the plates of the many people that worked in the organization at the time. Um, you know, because once again, war and depression, those type of things happen. Um, and it's important that they just found a way to continue to employ these people uh, that needed every dollar uh, that, that they could get, you know, during this time. So is there any final final notes uh, that you want to add to this discussion to kind you of know, wrap it up? I mean, we, we, we could actually, I mean, obviously talk for many more hours about sure. all the different projects, but I, I really do want to mention one. Uh, and, and this is another article. It's called Walt Disney classified the Aranka project. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, this was, this was about, um, uh, you know, again, they created an insignia uh, for uh, this particular little aircraft. It was, it was called the Aranka L3, which was known as the grasshopper. Uh-huh. And, and, and it kind of looks like a Piper Cub. It's a little two-seater, uh, single-engine aircraft. And this thing could land anywhere. It could just drop into a little grassy field. It, you know, it was one of these very uh, lightweight and versatile little aircraft. And <clears throat> I thought it was really neat because they used this if, uh, you know, if a tank was broken down out on the battlefield, this little plane would buzz in and they would drop stuff out the window to, to the tank crew, you know, like parts and things like that yeah. so that they could repair uh, uh, out in the field. And, and I thought it was really kind of a, a, a neat little um, uh, uh, insignia that they created, but also the, just the whole story behind uh, this particular aircraft. And they actually brought one of the aircraft to the Disney studios to film some of the, um, you know, uh, field repairs that would need to be done for these types of planes. Uh, and uh, the Aranka uh, aircraft company uh, in, you know, out in the Midwest would was was very proud of uh, of what their plane was able to do and uh, and it was sort of the beginnings of the US Army well it was the US Army Air Force which eventually became the United States Air Force and uh, you know these again were were just really interesting uh, uh, little snippets of history for the for the Walt Disney Company not only did they do amazing art and insignias but can I say the layout 
the the layout that they did for these brochures is like second to none. I mean, still to this day, I look at these and it's just like, this is amazing. I, I find catalogs of those of that era, just catalogs in general, all the way till maybe yeah. like the, the early 70s are absolutely amazing how much craftsmanship is put into not only the the words and the text but layout it's just i love that that whole the, yeah. the disney brochure aspect of it all yeah and, and you know for the aranka uh, uh for aranka they did the uh they did a publication uh a little story on mr grasshopper win, wins his wings uh which was a publication done in 1943 uh you had uh, uh there was uh, the uh uh, what is propaganda pamphlet that was done for the war department that has uh, Donald Duck drawings yeah. in it. Uh, there was also the, um, the Spanduels, which were, were sort of the gremlins, you know, the, the other gremlins. Uh, uh, and they had a whole uh, 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 pamphlet on, uh, on the Spanduels. There you go. About uh, all about icing up, uh, you know, planes icing up in weather, various weather conditions. Prevent ice by applying preheat to keep the carburetor temperature above freezing. If carburetor ice cannot be controlled, land while there is still sufficient power to control the plane. Ice presents many flight problems. It is easy to get, but hard to get rid of. A pilot must know icing conditions and how to combat them. Equipped with this knowledge, good judgment still must be exercised. Your decisions will depend on your mission and the limitations of the craft you are flying. There you go. And you, once again, all of those articles, including, you know, the what is propaganda uh, you know, uh, Donald Duck, uh, kind of a brochure, I guess uh, that, that you put out, um, that Disney had put out was also in there as, as one of your articles as well. So once again, all of them great reads and I encourage our listening audience to please check this out. I'm sure this is not the last time we'll be, uh, talking about this subject, because as you say, you know, any one of these articles, we can go really in depth and really drill down deep uh, into individual sections of, of this in your in your article vault, which uh, which is <laughs> once again, just uh, once again, a treasure trove for for Disney fans to, yeah. to get in. And, you know, the other thing I was going to point out is that some of these pieces I've written because I have I, I've collected a lot of this material. So so there's an article you know, that I've written on the ration book holder. You know, Disney actually <laughs> right. produced a little ration book sleeve that you would put your ration book into. Um which was, you know, everybody had a ration book of coupons uh, that they had to use for various staples during World War II, you there know, you whether it was, you know, paper towels or, you know, meat products and bacon or whatever, you know. Uh, so <laughs> you can read all about the uh, the ration book holder. Much better than the uh, rationed uh, bacon and eggs uh, smell that uh, Donald Duck had to uh, endure when he was having that nightmare dream of him there you go. waking there you up go. as part of the Reich. So uh, great stuff once again. And once again, thank you to Scott Rosen 
for just an amazing question. And it, once again, if you want your answers, uh, your, your questions to be answered on a show, don't hesitate to send us those emails right here on Skull Rock Podcast. Am I glad to be a of the New United States of America? Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your Main Street to the world of Disney. Wow, Dave. How about that for a guest spot? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, you know, uh, it's, it's always good to have him on the show. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. You know, he just keeps on coming back with more great stuff. But uh, once again, seriously, that was an awesome, awesome discussion. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about it and what did you pick up and what other questions our listeners might have. Uh, be sure to please email Dave, as we said at the top of the show, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Al John at SkullRockPodcast.com. Even pay us those DMs on social media. We do check that every week. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, of course, Instagram as well. You can check out all of our previous episodes in the show archive at our dot com skullrockpodcast.com as well as anchor which is great you put a little tippage in the tip jar if you so choose but uh, what we would definitely love is for you to just subscribe spread the word about the show give us those thumbs up and leave us those reviews to be read on a future episode of this program and dave uh, i'll let you have uh, of course the last word well, uh, as always, peace and love to everybody. Go out, have a fantastic week. Uh, and, and just to, to add on to what Al John said, uh, please uh, send us your notes. Uh, if there's a particular topic you want to hear about, uh, let us know. Or if you have some questions uh, about the upcoming topics, uh, like uh, the restoration show we're going to do in about a month or so, uh, send us those notes. And we will be back here next week, right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. The Skull Rock Podcast is made possible by listeners like you. To support the show with a monthly donation to help sustain future episodes, please visit anchor.fm and click the listener support link. We'd like to thank Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. Thank you for supporting Skull Rock Podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, please email us skullrockpodcast at gmail.com for details. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list 
rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co-host of Dining at Disney Podcast. Every week I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.